1 Kings 8, verses 1 to 21. Then King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families, to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. All the men of Israel came together to King Solomon at the time of the festival in the month of Ethanium, the seventh month. When all the elders of Israel arrived, the priests took up the ark and they brought up to the ark of the Lord in the tent of meetings all the sacred furnishings in it. The priests and Levites carried them up and King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. The priests then brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark and overshadowed the Ark with its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from the outside the holy place, and they are still there today. There was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. While the whole assembly of Israel was standing there, the king turned round and blessed them. Then he said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has with his own hands fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to my father David. For he said, Since the day I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have not chosen a city in any tribe of Israel to have a temple built for my name to be there, but I have chosen David to rule my people Israel. My father David had it in his heart to build a temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Because it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well to have this in your heart. Nevertheless, you are not the one to build a temple, but your son, who is your own flesh and blood. He is the one who will build the temple for my name. The Lord has kept the promise he made. I have succeeded David my father, and now I sit on the throne of Israel just as the Lord promised. And I have built the temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. I have provided a place there for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of Egypt. One of my all-time favourite movies is The Dish. Hands up who loves The Dish. It's a top movie. If you haven't seen The Dish, you've got to go and borrow it sometime. Um, it's, the, um, it's a great Aussie film about the space telescope at Parks in uh, New South Wales. And it tells a story about how the Parks telescope 
was uh, the telescope that received the signals from the Apollo 11 mission and transmitted those signals around the world. Uh, although I understand that uh, in reality that the telescope at Honeysuckle Creek just near Canberra actually played a bigger role than the Parkes uh, telescope, but why let facts get in the way of a good story? Uh, it's a great story, it's a great movie because it's got all the right ingredients, uh, good storyline, comedy, um, romance, nostalgia, uh, drama uh, and history. And at the point in the movie when Neil Armstrong sets foot on the surface of the moon, they show uh, actual footage from uh, not only the moonwalk but of people all around the globe uh, glued to their TV sets in public places. Everybody, uh, it was like the world stopped. It was like for one moment in time, everybody, all of humanity was, was united uh, in this uh, awesome event. Uh, it was as if nothing else mattered. And it was like that. Do you remember watching it yourself if you're old enough to remember back to that far? It was a great moment. Three years later, when the Apollo 15 mission went to the moon, they were the first uh, Apollo mission to take a, uh, a motor vehicle to the moon. You might remember that. Uh, the moon buggy. One of the astronauts was a fellow by the name of Jim Irwin, who was a Christian, and... Uh, Later on, he reflected on what it was like for him to be uh, riding this moon buggy around on the surface of the moon as he rode up uh, to the um, foot of this uh, great majestic uh, lunar mountain. He said that he looked back and behind him in the sky he saw this tiny round ball, uh, this uh, rather beautiful and rather fragile planet, Earth. And it was an awesome experience because he could see, get an appreciation of just how small we actually are, um, but how much God actually cares for us. And he said at that point in time, he said, there on the lunar surface, I knew God's presence very real and very close. Now, I mention this because I want to talk about how it is that we experience um, the presence of God. Uh, we, we don't actually need to go to the moon to experience God's presence. And I think that the point here is that uh, God is not restricted to any place, that uh, you can be on the surface of the moon and God is there as well. Um, you might remember the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17. He was addressing the crowd of Greeks in Athens at the Areopagus and uh, they were very religious people. They had lots of temples and shrines and statues to their gods and so on. And listen to what Paul said. He said, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. That's who God is. Now, that seems obvious to us, doesn't it? But how easy is it for us to slip into a kind of mentality whereby we, we sort of think that um, God is more present in certain places than he is in other places. Uh, for example, uh, there is a tendency that people have to think that God is somehow more present 
in certain buildings. Uh, there are many buildings, um, church and cathedral buildings around the world that have been specifically designed by the architects in order to artificially create this, um, this, this atmosphere, uh, this experience of the numinous, this experience that God is somehow present when you walk into that building. Uh, as if God is present in the building more than what he's present on the road outside the building. Now, why is it that people think like this? Why do we have this tendency towards thinking that God dwells in buildings? Well, one of the reasons, I think it's a very big reason, is the Old Testament temple. Uh, that in the Old Testament, that there was a building uh, to which people went in order to specially... Uh, worship God and experience God. The temple of God was sometimes called the house of God. But if everyone, if God lives everywhere, then why did they have a temple in the Old Testament? That's what I wanted to talk about uh, this morning as we continue our series on 1 Kings. A couple of weeks back, uh, we saw in 1 Kings chapters 1 to 4 that during the reign of King Solomon, that Israel was in what you'd call her golden age. Uh, they were well established in the land that God had promised. They uh, had peace from their neighbours. They were wealthy and they had this very wise and very respected king, King Solomon. And it was during that time that King Solomon decided that it was high time to build a house for God. A temple. Now, that was the right thing to do at the time, and I'll explain why later. But if you want to open up your Bibles at 1 Kings chapter 5, uh, and chapter 5 through to chapter 9 is the section that we're dealing with, uh, we see that these chapters really give a description of the magnificence of this building that Solomon built. Now, let me say just a few things about the building. I want you to read it for yourself at home, particularly chapters 6 and 7, to get the description. But first of all, the building was not particularly big. Uh, it was about 9 metres wide and about 27 metres long. So it's not very big at all. Uh, it didn't have to be because it didn't have to fit a lot of people in it. The people actually met outside the temple and the temple itself was only for the priests and for certain things which were placed inside it. Um, so it was small, but it was incredibly ornate and elaborate. Uh, for example, the whole of the interior of the building was, was, was covered with gold. Um, outside the building, they had these two solid bronze pillars, which were about eight metres high, and about five and a half metres around. Uh, there was incredible craftsmanship that went into the temple. Uh, every block of uh, stone that was used was carved to precision, um, not uh, in Jerusalem, but before it actually got to the construction site. Uh, the temple was filled with furniture, which was made from the finest materials that were available in the world and which were crafted by the finest, um, most skilled craftspeople, craftsmen. Um, and as I say, you can read all about it in chapters 6 and 7. Uh, the ancient world had some pretty amazing buildings, some of which still stand. 
But the, uh, the temple that Solomon built was one of the most amazing of them all. Take a look at the sheer manpower that was involved. Let me read to you from chapter 5, uh, picking up at verse 13. It says, King Solomon conscripted labourers from all Israel, 30,000 men. He sent them off to Lebanon in shifts of 10,000 a month so that they spent one month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the forced labour. Solomon had 70,000 carriers and 80,000 stone cutters in the hills, as well as 3,300 foremen who supervised the project and directed uh, the workmen. It's amazing, isn't it? Uh, the incredible amount of labour that's actually involved in producing gives you an idea of how special and how ornate this building actually was. And it took them a full seven years to build them. And I didn't think that they worked short hours. I think they worked long hours. But that's how magnificent the building was. Um, when they officially dedicated the, the temple, they brought the whole of the nation together. And it was an incredibly huge occasion. Um, in chapter 8, verse 62 and following, uh, we see that they offered up sacrifices at the dedication. And they sacrificed 22,000 head of cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. Now, just try to picture that, will you? Uh, it's all happening outside the building. They had to set up, obviously, special altars to, to cater for the sheer volume. They had the whole nation around, and this took place over a number of days. But this was an awesome event. Now, why? Why do this? What was the significance of the temple? I want to um, try to simplify the significance of the temple today um, for you by saying that it was not significant purely because of its grandeur. That's not the critical issue. The temple was significant for three key reasons. And I've listed these for you on your outlines. First of all, it symbolised the rule of God over his people. Now we see this in the passage that was read to us in chapter 8, verses 1 to 9. In chapter 8, verses 1 to 9, uh, we're told that Solomon organised for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought to the temple. Now, you may know what the Ark of the Covenant is. It's got nothing to do with Noah's Ark. The Ark of the Covenant was a box. And what was significant about it was what was contained inside the box. Now, you see what, what was contained inside it in verse 9. Have a look at verse 9. There was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. It's interesting, isn't it? He says there was nothing in the ark except these two stone... What two stone tablets is it talking about? These are the two stone tablets that God gave to Moses and inscribed upon those stone tablets the Ten Commandments. These are the actual Ten Commandments that were placed inside this box, inside the Ark of the Covenant. 
And we're told here that the ark was brought to the temple and it was placed uh, in the section of the temple which was called the Holy of Holies, sometimes referred to as the most holy place. There were several rooms in the temple and the, uh, the, the most important room was the Holy of Holies. There was only one person who would ever enter it. That was the high priest and he would enter it on the Day of Atonement where he made um, sacrifices for the sins of the people. And we're told here that the Ark of the Covenant was placed in between two um, statues of cherubs, of, 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 of angels. This was the centrepiece of the temple and it contained the Ten Commandments. So what that means is that the temple symbolised the rule of God over his people as symbolised by the Ten Commandments. Now, secondly, the temple signified or symbolised the presence of God amongst his people. I'm going to read to you from verse 10 of chapter 8. Have a look at this. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Now, when Moses had gone up to Mount Sinai to meet with God, God revealed himself to Moses in a cloud. And here we see at the opening of the temple that the cloud, the glory of the Lord, filled the temple. So much so that the priests had to get out of the temple. They could not do their work. God's glory filled the temple. Can you imagine what that would have looked like? Extraordinary. And so what I'm saying here is that the temple not only symbolised the rule of God over his people, it symbolised the presence of God amongst his people, as seen in the glory cloud of the Lord. So what we have here for Israel is God's people were now living in God's place, under God's rule, with God dwelling amongst them, which was just what God had promised Abraham so many years ago. Now, listen also to what Solomon said to God as he dedicated the temple. I'm going to read from uh, chapter 8, verse 22. You following me? Chapter 8, verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. Now, Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promise you made to him when you said, you shall never fail to have a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons are careful in all that they do to walk before me as you have done. And now, God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. 
Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, O Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place of which you have said, My name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your, your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Now, there's a lot that's packed into that, but um, let me just draw out a couple of uh, thoughts for you. First of all, Solomon was, none, was under no illusions, was he? God did not live inside the temple. The whole of heaven cannot contain God. How, less, how much less this uh, building that Solomon had built. Um, as magnificent as the temple is, not even Solomon thought that it was some kind of a God box, that God lives there. But secondly, when Solomon prayed, he, he asked God that when people look towards the temple and pray to him, that he would hear from heaven and that he would forgive their sins. That's the third purpose of the temple. The temple symbolises the forgiveness of God because the temple was the place of sacrifices. The temple was the place where animals were, were, uh, were butchered on the altar as an atoning sacrifice for sins. And it is only as blood is shed that God's justice is fulfilled and forgiveness can be granted. Indeed, throughout the rest of Solomon's prayer, he keeps on praying for forgiveness for sins. So the three things which the temple represents, God's rule over his people, God's presence amongst his people, and God's forgiveness of his people. Does that make sense so far? Okay. Well, can you imagine how confident that made the Israelites feel. I mean, every time you looked at the temple, you were reminded, if you're an Israelite, that you were one of God's special people. You were reminded that God um, dwelt amongst you, that his presence was symbolised by the, the temple. And you're reminded that God is a forgiving God. So it became a great symbol of those things. But symbols mean nothing unless they are a reflection of a reality. Now, what's the reality that can go missing here? The reality that can go missing is the rule of, God's, of God over his people, their obedience to God. Um, look, it's the same for us today. There are, there are religious symbols that people can... Um, attached to themselves that uh, really mean nothing without faith in Jesus. There's a lot of people who wear crosses around their neck, um, but that means nothing if you don't put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and if you're not obedient to him. Uh, you know, from time to time I have people coming to me who want me to baptise their, their children. And uh, when I talk to them <clears throat> uh, from time to time, they'll say to me that they're actually not all that interested in getting together and meeting with me and talking about God and who God is and what God wants from them and what God has done from them. They're just interested in getting the job done. 
you know, or getting the, the kid done. And so they want the symbol, uh, but they're not all that interested in the reality. Um, how many people are there walking around who've got religious symbols, like I've been baptised, I've been confirmed or whatever, but are actually not living with Christ Jesus as Lord and Saviour? Now that's a, just a contemporary illustration of this and it became a problem for Israel uh, because symbols without the reality are, are worthless. In fact, they can be dangerous. And uh, Israel, over the years, they got so caught up in this beautiful building that they forgot what it represented. They were happy that it represented the presence of God, they were happy that it represented the forgiveness of God but in terms of the rule of God over their lives, that was a different issue. They failed to obey God. Now, one of the other prophets at the time is Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah points out to them, he says, you, you people say, we've got the temple of God. We've got the temple of God. We've got the temple of God. Therefore, we are okay with God. Right? But Jeremiah says, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. How about trusting in God? How about obeying God? What about justice to the poor? What about looking after orphans and widows? What about mercy? What about your worshipping of idols? They thought that they were God's people living in God's land and so it didn't matter how they lived, God would forgive them. Well, it does matter. Obedience matters a great deal to God. And it was only a few years after the death of Solomon that the Egyptians uh, did a bit of a raid on Jerusalem and they took stuff, they pillaged stuff out of the temple. Uh, it was about 400 years after the temple was dedicated that God did what on the day of this dedication would have been considered to be unthinkable and God allowed the Babylonians to uh, invade Jerusalem, to um, defeat the Jews, to take the people into exile in Babylon, to pillage the temple and in fact to destroy the temple and to reduce the temple to nothing. There's a huge contrast, isn't there? From the grandeur of the dedication day to the day that all that's left is rubble. And why did God do that? He did it because they were trusting in symbols rather than trusting in God. He took everything away that he'd given to them. He took away the land. He took away their wealth. He took away the temple in order that they might actually humble themselves, repent and turn back to God. So what was the point of the temple? And I want to ask the question, how is the temple relevant to us today? To what extent does it mean that we should try to replicate the grandeur of the temple in our church buildings? Uh, it's interesting that after the temple was destroyed and the people were exiled in Babylon, and after they returned from their exile in Babylon, the prophets kept on talking about a new temple. 
we read about it, for example, in Haggai chapter 2, where the prophet Haggai says the new temple will exceed the glory of the temple of Solomon. Now, they built a new temple and it didn't come anywhere near the glory of Solomon's temple. That temple was later destroyed. Then they built another one, which is the one that we see uh, in the days of Jesus, which was built by Herod. Nowhere near as good as the temple that Solomon built. And yet the prophets keep on saying that the glory of the new temple will far exceed the glory of Solomon's temple. How can that be the case? What temple were the prophets talking about? Well, think about what the temple represented. The rule of God, the presence of God, the forgiveness of God. Now, where do we see the rule of God, the presence of God and the forgiveness of God expressed most clearly? It's in Jesus. Uh, in John chapter 1, verse 14, we looked at John 1 a few months ago. Uh, John says, we have seen his glory. Uh, what does he say? Let me, we should look it up, actually. Uh, in John chapter 1, verse 14. Very important passage. Here you go. John chapter 1, verse 14. I was quoting one John just a moment ago, I think. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John is able to talk about the glory of the Lord, the glory that Haggai spoke about. And God's presence was represented by the temple but finds its reality when God became a man. When Jesus walked the earth. The temple also symbolised the rule of God. And Jesus is the only person who has fully obeyed God, who has fully sat under the rule of God perfectly so. In fact, he is the one who now becomes the ruler. Yet by dying as a sacrificial lamb, he paid for sins. He fulfilled everything that the sacrificial system of the temple was all about. He made forgiveness possible. So God's rule, God's presence, God's forgiveness are all totally fulfilled in Jesus so that he is the temple. You know, he's able to say, uh, um, destroy this temple, pointing to Herod's temple, and I will raise it up in three days. And uh, it says he was talking about his own body, the resurrection. See, the temple of, that Solomon built was incredibly glorious, but its purpose was to point us to a greater reality, to Jesus now, there's more than that, because after Jesus ascended to heaven, uh, what did he do? He sent forth God the Holy Spirit. And uh, God the Holy Spirit came to dwell, not in a building, not in a temple, but to dwell in 
in us. In us. If you are a person who submits to the rule of God, if you are a person who is forgiven by God through Jesus, then God dwells in you so that you are a temple of God. Uh, we're told in uh, passages such as Ephesians 2 and 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that we, that is Christian people, are the temple of God. For God dwells in us. So I want us to think then about the implications of what this means for how we experience God. Uh, and let me say, I want to say two things. Firstly, that there is a trend in churches to think that we experience God through um, the creation of an atmosphere uh, in church services. Uh, let me explain that. Um, Jeff Bullock is a pretty well-known Australian Christian uh, songwriter and musician. Uh, he was once the, the music pastor of a big church in Sydney, and which he doesn't belong to anymore. And he said that he spent 15 years uh, in his role at that church uh, using music uh, in order to uh, create an atmosphere whereby the people who are at the church services would uh, feel that God had come into their midst, that God was, was present. Uh, now, you, know, you can use, use music to do lots of things, can't you? Uh, you can use music to generate emotions, to create atmosphere and so on. Uh, but in doing that, they confused that feeling and thought that that was the presence of God, that God had somehow entered uh, into their presence. And uh, that, that still happens today. I see um, articles and advertisements for churches which um, talk about this very same thing. Uh, that's what Jeff Bullitt was into until he went through a crisis in his life which led to him coming to a clearer understanding of the gospel. Uh, listen to one thing that he said in an article. He posed the question, what must I do to experience the presence of God? And he says, that was what I was all about. What must we do as a church to experience God's presence? What must we do to make the church more successful, to have an encounter with God, to get more of God? End of quote. And he goes on to say that now he realises that that was wrong. Now he realises that the whole idea of me trying to do something to experience the presence of God, well... It's all about what God has already done through the death and the resurrection of his son Jesus. We experience God through trusting in Christ, through trusting that his sacrifice has paid for sins, that he is God in the flesh, and that through him we can have a forgiveness. So if you have Jesus then there is no greater experience of God that you can have. You've got it all in him. 
It doesn't matter how you're feeling emotionally. You have a relate. We come to God through Jesus, through his gospel. Now, that means, therefore, that there's another implication to that. And that is that because God now dwells in us, that we don't need special buildings in order to experience God. Um, Church buildings are very helpful, but they are not helpful because they keep the sun off us, they keep the rain off us, but they are not temples. They are not the house of God. We can so easily slip into a mindset that thinks that they are. Have you experienced that? Have you come across it? Let me tell you something. I said earlier on that the Solomon's temple was nine metres wide and 27 metres long, right? How big do you think this building is? I measured it yesterday. From that wall there to that wall there, nine metres. From the front door to the wall behind the screen, 27 metres. I couldn't believe it. Now, my, my measurements may not be accurate, um, you know, give or take a you know, few centimetres. What did the architect have in mind? What do you think? Uh, I, I, before I came to Port Macquarie Church, uh, I was, there was a church that was interested in employing me as their minister. And Cassie and myself and Andrew, we went to spend a weekend with this church and to meet them and for them to meet us and so on. And I did a bit of research into the church. One of the things that they had going every, uh, for one Saturday every year, at a special Saturday, where they would open up the doors to the church building, the minister would dress up in all of his Presbyterian religious outfit, you know, clerical collar, black shirt, gown and all this sort of business. They'd get the Lord's table and they'd put that sort of where the lectern is here. Minister would sit behind the Lord's table and during the day, uh, congregation members could come at their leisure, walk up to the table and put money on it. What are they doing? Uh, the, you know what they called it? Temple day. Temple day. So the Lord's table, they're thinking that's an altar. The minister, they're thinking, is a priest. The money, they're thinking, is a sacrifice. The building, they're thinking, is a, is a temple. Well, the interview was interesting. Uh, they said to me, is there any comments I wanted to... After they asked me lots of questions, I said, is there any comments I wanted to make? And I said, well, yeah, just to let you know in advance that um, if you employ me as your minister, there won't be more, any more temple days. <laughs> and while we're at it, I won't be doing the annual Freemasons church service for you either. That was like lobbing a hand grenade into the meeting. They all started fighting amongst each other and I just sort of sat back. And anyway, I didn't get the job. 
So, <laughs> but I'm just, you know, can we do the same thing with our building? Can we sort of, you know, put certain things in place and think that, you know, that they they consecrate furniture? You know, when they open up church buildings, they give some special guy comes and consecrates the building and they consecrate furniture. And once it's consecrated, it's saying this is now dedicated to God and guess what? You're not going to touch it. You're not going to change it. You're not going to remove it. And the focus is on the building. The focus is on the furniture. It's like the our focus, friends, is to be on trusting in Jesus, experiencing God's presence through him and experiencing God's presence through each other as we, as the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Now, do we need this building in order to do that? No. We can do that here in this building. I'm grateful we've got this building. We can do it in each other's homes as we meet during the week, during Bible studies and other fellowship occasions. We can do it in the hall. We can do it on the lake at Foster. We can even do it on the moon uh, because we experience God's presence through the gospel and through his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your temple as it is fulfilled in Jesus and in the Christian church. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your rule. We thank you for your forgiveness. May we not be like the Israelites who took those things for granted and neglected to obey you. And may we not seek to experience you through means other than the gospel. May we delight in your presence amongst us. May we be ever grateful for your forgiveness. And may we live with Jesus as our ruler. In his name we pray. Amen.